There are times after a long life or a long and debilitating illness that death feels like a blessing, that tears are healing and restorative, redemptive, that stories can be easily shared about your loved one and they bring forth great bursts of laughter. In those times, these words of Jesus today, blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh, they make some sense. But there are other experiences of death and loss that are only agony and emptiness of the heart. It's not a gift, it's a burden, a sorrow, a void. This is not a moment where God is revealed. It's that moment that causes you to question if there is a God of any goodness at all. And the farthest thing from someone who is in the throes of that kind of sorrow is laughter. There's too much hurt to laugh. All of that kind of grief sits in this room in one way or another today. Names are printed in the bulletin of those within our fellowship who have died in the last year. Some of them have lived out the fullness of their days. They spent time on adventures they loved freely and fully. Others died in inexplicable tragedy. And all that can be mustered is a numb energy to persist from day to day. So how can we, in this diversity of hope and sorrow, be a community of people who through our tears trust that by some miracle of grace we will laugh? Sheryl Sandberg in her book, Option B, writes about the devastating sorrow she endured after the sudden death of her husband that left her to raise their two children by herself. She came to realize over time that a new path had to be found, a new way forward had to be forged. And this didn't involve necessarily some kind of new undertaking for the family. They didn't need to move houses. They didn't need to take some kind of a trip. She describes a situation on a day when she suggested to the kids that they play uh, the game, Settlers of Catan. This was a favorite game that they shared with their dad. The kids agreed she pulled the game off the shelf. This is what Sandberg writes. In the past, I was always orange. My daughter was blue. My son was red. Dave was gray. When just the three of us sat down to play, my daughter pulled out the gray pieces. My son got upset and tried to take them away from her, insisting, that was daddy's color, you can't be gray. I held his hand and said, she can be gray. We take things back. We do not sit in tears forever. There is laughter. There is joy. There is a new path. Joy as an act of defiance. Joy as an act of faith in the midst of tears. This is the great marvel and the mystery of Christian faith. We are very honest 
about the reality and the finality of death. When a person lays in the grave, they are just past. They are pure memory. There is no future for them, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But then we celebrate. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and we trust the promise that in his resurrection is the assurance of our own. And we dare to laugh because death has been defeated. We laugh because we know that God can be revealed even at the grave. I went out in our columbarium this week. That's the place just outside the building here where we lay to rest the remains of those in our fellowship who have died. I've been, I went out there and I, and I counted the markers. There have been 24 folks who I've been a part of laying to rest in that columbarium. Some of those folks um, lived a fullness of their days. It was a time of joy and gratitude. For others, they were laid to rest in inexplicable sorrow that words could never capture. Some were spouses who died years apart, and you can tell from the engraving on the plaque when the first one was inurned versus the second because of how it's been weathered by the wind and the rain. There are folks out there who lived for over a century, and others but a couple of decades. There's a grandmother laid next to her granddaughter. There's best friends in niches side by side. I ran my fingers over those plaques. These people, beloved of God, yet gone. Inheritors of a promise. A promise that causes us to put them on the front lawn of the church. Because we don't forget the dead here. We look upon them. We remember them. We make the life of our church literally around them. They're at the center of who we are. Laughter and tears. Joy and sorrow. All jumbled up together in the eternal love of God. And I saw some other names on those plaques. I saw some of your names on those plaques. A name engraved and a birth date and then a blank for an unknown time in the future when you will die and be laid to rest out there. That's an acknowledgement. It's an act of faith to recognize the finality of your life and through tears and sorrow commit to that resurrection promise. It wasn't that long ago that 
Wade and Robbie Whitehead came by the office to pick out their niche in the columbarium. They gave me permission to share this story with you today. I met them in the office and asked if they'd like help picking out their niche in the columbarium, and they replied, well, we've never picked out a burial niche for ourselves before, so yeah, it would be helpful. Uh, So we got the chart that we have in the church office that labels the different niches and which ones are reserved and which ones are available. It's letters across the top, numbers down the side, so you can line up who's going to be where. And so we went outside to examine what are the criteria you look for when deciding where you're going to be buried. And so we tried to see if there was some way the number and letter could combine to have some kind of significance in their life's story. Uh, We considered the height or the level uh, of the location. Eventually, they picked the bottom corner, jokingly because Jesus says the last will be first. So maybe if you're at the bottom, you get resurrected first on the last day, and those at the top actually have to wait till the end. Um, slightly more seriously, though, they noted that they would enjoy being close to the children who go out there in the spring to do their annual Easter egg hunt. Now, when they finished picking their niche, um, they kneeled on either side of it and had me take their picture. And then they texted that picture to their young adult children, Jack and Grace, to say, guess what we've done this afternoon? Now, some folks would think that was inappropriate, that was insensitive, that was morbid. But you see, while we were out there, we talked about the other saints who were buried in that columbarium, the influence of their lives and their faith. It wasn't a mockery of death. It was a courageous act of truth-telling to acknowledge the finality of life, to know that you will die but to trust in the promise of a God who can be revealed in laughter in a graveyard. Sometimes there can be those moments of laughter and joy in the graveyard. And other times, the loss, the pain, the sorrow is so acute that that joy cannot be experienced. It can only be witnessed too. Many of you know that this winter, my Aunt Marilyn died at 69 years old, having been diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's in her early 60s. It was a terrible season of loss. My aunt was a musician. She played the piano by ear from the age of two years old. And that gift lives in her daughter, my cousin Brittany, who's a mother herself now. And so Brittany knew that she needed to play the piano at her mother's funeral. And so she opened the funeral with a prelude of a medley of hymns. I was officiating the service, so I was up in one of the chairs in the chancel. The piano was tucked into the corner of the chancel. Nobody in the congregation could see Brittany's face, but I could. And as she made the turn to the final hymn in the medley, I saw the tears soaking her cheeks, dripping off the end of her chin onto the keys. She pinched her eyes closed. She spread her teeth wide in a smile as she gritted them in agony. And she began to play the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
that old hundredth tune. This was not easy praise. This was not joyful praise. This was desperate praise. A courageous and a defiant act of joy even when she felt no joy in the moment, but it had to be played. The promise of laughter amidst the reality of tears. And when she finished the piece and she lifted her hands from the keys, Brittany's voice caught in a gasp. (gasps) As long as I am able to remember anything, I will remember that gasp. Sigh too deep for words, is how the Apostle Paul puts it. And so, all this tears and laughter, this hope and loss, the grief and the struggle to move forward with our lives, it can sometimes just seem like so much. We want to say, can't we just get rid of the suffering? Can't it just be done? Well, that's a theme. Um, It's a theme in Lois Lowry's classic children's book, The Giver. The book is set in a seeming utopia where all the people who live there have to have no suffering in their life. It's all been taken care of. In order to do that, though, they've often given up passion and love and affection. The main plot of the book tells the story of a young boy named Jonas who's chosen to become the new receiver for the community. The receiver is the person who has to bear all the memories of humanity that have been given up by the residents of the community so they don't have to suffer. So Jonas goes to the current receiver who becomes the giver to pass all those memories on to him. In the midst of their training, Jonas asks the giver one day, but why can't everyone share the memories? I think it would seem a little easier if the memories were shared. You and I wouldn't have to bear so much by ourselves if everybody took a part. The giver sighed, you're right, he said. But then everyone would be burdened and pained. They don't want that. And that's the real reason the receiver is so vital for them. So honored, they selected me and you to lift that burden from themselves. But Jonas eventually decides this antiseptic life without passion, without love, does not create a utopia, but in fact creates a dystopia. And so taking a young, vulnerable child, Jonas flees the community, crossing the boundary which forces all those memories back onto the people who'd been freed of them all those years ago. Jonas struggles through the wilderness with the child, barely being able to maintain his own life, preserve his own life. He reaches the top of a snowy mountain hill, and he finds there a sled buried in the snow. He'd had a memory of this sled given to him by the giver. He mounts the sled, places the child upon it as well, And they take off down the hill toward a village below. Here's how Lowry describes the final scene. 
He forced his eyes open as they went downward, downward, sliding, and all at once he could see lights. And he recognized them now. He knew they were shining through the windows of rooms, that they were red, blue, and yellow lights that twinkled from trees in places where families created and kept memories, where they celebrated love. Downward, downward, faster and faster. Suddenly he was aware with certainty and joy that below, ahead, they were waiting for him and that they were waiting too for the baby. For the first time he heard something that he knew was music. He heard people singing. So what's the scene before Jonas? It's Christmas. The tree adorned with lights, the people keeping and holding memories of love, waiting for the baby, singing. And Christmas is the celebration of the vulnerability of love. Christmas is God's declaration to be revealed in the difficulties and the pains and the sufferings of the world. It's God's commitment to tears and great laughter. So even when the temptation comes to close ourselves off to the suffering because it hurts so much, the God we know in Jesus Christ tells us that it is only in the suffering that we come to know the true power of love. And so with tears wetting our cheeks and dripping onto the keys, with our teeth clenched in pain, with our eyes on a vision of an Easter egg hunt in the columbarium and the surety that our name will one day be etched on a gravestone. We laugh 